As a confidant and coach to business leaders, I know a lot of people who are rich and miserable and those on the opposite side of the spectrum. So let's pull it all together, shall we? We'll explore the intersection between wealth and joy. We'll look at the psychology, spirituality, and practicality of money, plus some of the things that make up a truly lucrative lifestyle. I'm your host, Mindy Kinnis, and this is The Lucra Life. Hello, my friends. This episode is going to be filled with very interesting information, and because of the subject matter that we're going to be talking about, I'm going to begin with a disclaimer. The information provided in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical recommendation, diagnosis, or treatment. The use of information in this podcast is at one's own discretion and is not an endorsement of use given the complexity inherent in these medicines and the current variable widespread illegality of their use. Let me tell you a little bit about my guest today. He has a very unique background in integrative psychiatry, neurocognitive restoration, peak performance medicine, and one of my favorite topics, psychedelic research. My guest today is Dr. Dan Engel. Dr. Dan, welcome to the show. Mm, it's great to be with you, Mindy. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. So I'm just excited to see you again. First off, we met many, many years ago when our paths crossed here in Sedona. I live now in Sedona. I didn't tell you that before. Nice. So I am close to where we originally met many years ago. And this year I saw something awesome on social media. I saw a post that you had made about your brand new book called A Dose of Hope. And I was like, whew, let's talk about it. So I cannot wait to dive into this topic. Those of you who are listening, who have heard this podcast before, you know that I am a huge advocate of plant medicine and these types of experiences. So I have one of the experts here with us today. I can't wait to get started. Here's where I want to begin with you. In the book, you dedicate it to your sister, Trudy, and you talk about her suicide and also how that has inspired you in some of your current work. And I'd love for you to just talk a little bit about that, like your background, what happened there and how that has inspired you to what you're doing now. Mm-hmm. Let, let me respond in order of all the things you just shared. I'm happy to hear that you're Sedona. <laughs> Sedona is one of my dear, uh, sweet homes and yes. favorite places on the planet. And thank you for the kind words about the book. And yeah, it was uh, and is still consistently a impetus for me to be involved in this kind of work as an educator, advocate, facilitator, uh, leader, so to speak, in this growing industry, which I'm really excited to, to see venture forth into the new medical mainstream. Like as these medicines become more and more widely used, appreciated, researched, verified, then we get to change or update the legal landscape. And that's going to help us uh, essentially welcome in a new entire era of mental health care. So 
My backstory in psychedelic research and experience is mostly originally was in ayahuasca. And uh, when I was first introduced to ayahuasca, I was running a clinic at the time, learned more about myself in one weekend with Aya than I had in one decade of psychotherapy. Uh, so closed up my practice, moved down to the jungle, lived in the jungle for a year doing apprenticeship work, and then came back slowly reintegrated into society. That, that was a process just by itself. And Sedona was my home then. Uh, so again, one of the, the sweet spots on the planet for me. And how that's relevant to my sister is when I was involved with Aya for eight years, and I still am considerably, but the reason I say eight years, I was, I was only working with ayahuasca for those first eight years. And this started around 15, 16 years ago. I had known, my sister and I were pretty close about this, and she had shared her experiences with me about the challenges that she had had as a, a youngster, as a child, we grew up in different households. We share the same father, but grew up in different households with different moms. And she had had uh, exposure that was considerably unknown to the family of significant child sexual abuse by somebody in her extended mother's side of the family. And as a result, uh, had horrible PTSD, addiction, primarily to alcohol and depression. And how all of that is relevant to this landscape of psychedelic research is that she had the unfortunate timing of being in this, this gray phase, so to speak, of psychedelic research and education and advocacy. And what I mean by that is in the, around 1970-71, most of the medicines went into Schedule One through the Nixon administration. War on drugs, public enemy number one. Uh, MDMA followed suit about 10 years later and should have never been in Schedule One. Schedule One means there's no known medical benefit and they're highly addictive. And most, if not all of the medicines fail on at least one of those accounts and most fail on both of those accounts because most of the medicines are highly therapeutic and anti-addictive. And unfortunately, uh, Trudy's nine years older than I am. When she committed suicide and passed going on 10 years ago, there wasn't near as much known at that time about the benefit of psychedelic therapies. And there wasn't near as much education, advocacy, available conversation and so these therapies were largely unavailable, even in the underground community. That has changed significantly over the last 10 years. And when she passed, uh, I had been only working, really working with ayahuasca and I was still doing all my work underground. Was doing at that time a fair bit of work in integrative psychiatric community running centers to help people get off of psychiatric medications. But I wasn't really a voice, so to speak, above board with these medicines. And when she passed, I realized I couldn't stay silent anymore mm. and closed up my clinical affiliations at that point, went back down south and started uh, getting involved in documentaries, coming on board with a variety of different organizations as a consultant to their programs and slowly opened up the toolkit 
so to speak, beyond just ayahuasca to understand how all the medicines work and how all the medicines have their sacred place at the table. And it's up to us as facilitators of this new era of the psychedelic Renaissance is to know and to really establish the art form and the rubric of, of onboarding people to assess what medicine to use for which person at which time in the midst of everything else that they're going through and doing. And I think that's where we have the greatest opportunity to really solidify the, the expanding excellence in this field is to recognize that not every medicine is a one size fits all model and not everybody's ready to have a medicine experience. And all the medicines are quite different and quite unique and everybody is by themselves quite different and quite unique. So how, how do we bring those two worlds together in a way that recognizes the greatest and realizes the greatest potential? Yeah, that's so true because even in my own experience from everything from ayahuasca to MDMA, DMT, mushrooms, et cetera, I definitely have my preferences and then some that I'm like, Meh, yeah, you know, don't necessarily need to do that ever again in my life. <laughs> so I appreciate that about just the uniqueness of both the substance and the person. But let's talk a little bit about, you, you gave this stat in your book that blew me away, quite honestly. You said that for PTSD specifically, with the research, there's about 35% improvement rate with standard care. But with assisted therapy, MDMA assisted therapy, that bumps up to not just 70% improvement rate, but a 70% cure rate. And I read that and I'm like, oh, this is freaking amazing. Can you talk a little bit about some of the research that is ongoing and like just how incredible and powerful this is? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That data point is one of the biggest pause moments for the skeptics. Like, oh, okay. That's There's like hitting very... in the face. Like how yeah. can you not recognize the power of this? We can't deny this any further. That's why I don't think it's a matter of if psychedelic therapies are going to become legal and the new mainstream. It's just a matter of how and when. And there are very few things that have that degree of success in medicine in general, especially for psychiatry. The standard of care, as we've known it over the last 50 years, has been talk therapy and medication management. And that's regardless of we're talking about depression, anxiety, PTSD, addiction. We were just talking about my sister, Trudy, and Trudy had done everything in the standard of care. She had done medication. She had done, she'd gone to AA. It was highly devoted to AA. She had exhaustively been in talk therapy for over a decade. She had done, checked off all the boxes and yet it still wasn't enough. And she still lost that battle. And so when we look at the considerable exponential improvement that MDMA therapy has in reference to the standard care, it's one of the reasons where if I'm talking to a field of physicians about psychedelic therapies, I just start with data because the data is so impressive. And we can talk about the mechanisms of action and why that data is so good, probably even more importantly in, in reference to our conversation, these medicines 
with MDMA leading the way, largely through the work of MAPS and Rick Doblin over the last 35 years, it has been fairly, in my humble opinion, slow. The research is slow. The data is slow. Everything just runs a little slower when we're rehabilitating an entire system of legal framework, as well as a, as a re-education to the masses of how the war on drugs was actually a politically motivated maneuver. Totally. Like you're going against a whole ethos of understanding. Yeah. Yeah. So we're not just trying to convince the DEA. We're, we're really helping to educate the entire, all the masses so that this grassroots movement gains more and more steam and people demand that these medicines become more and more available and legal while we're seeing people die in the streets. 120 to 130 people in the United States commit suicide daily, most of that from trauma. And we have medicine, we're talking about one right here. MDMA is not the only medicine for trauma. It just happens to be the best one. What I mean by the best one is for a variety of different reasons. It's synthetic, so we can scale it. We can ensure purity and potency and scale it in mass without detriment to the natural world and extractive resource allocation and utilization. So like ayahuasca is extraordinarily good for trauma as well. However, it takes a deep degree of excellence and facilitation as you're aware. And it's a natural medicine that takes a long time to grow. And the global demand for ayahuasca is already stripping out the resources. Mm, so if we're talking know about, you know, helping to move the, the dial and the needle forward, it makes sense to be able to use something that either grows really fast, like psilocybin, or something that's synthetic that can scale like MDMA. And it just happens to be that those are the two medicines that are going to be legal in the next 18 months or so. Psilocybin has been fast-tracked by the FDA for depression and MDMA has been fast-tracked for PTSD. I am so delighted to hear that. Like I didn't realize it was in that 18 month mm -hmm. spectrum from now. That is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. 18 months is, that's the last estimate from Rick Doblin and MAPS about when they expect phase three to finalize, be published, and essentially to give now the green light for legalization. Probably take another six months or so of hoops and ladders through the feds. And so we're looking at around summer, spring, summer 2023. And that's a very reasonable, very doable timeline. Unfortunately, between now and then, there's a lot of suffering, especially in the midst of COVID and especially in the midst of isolation. We've seen the already exponential, exponentially growing epidemics of depression, anxiety, PTSD, addiction, and pain, and others, but those are the top five psychiatric epidemics. We've already seen those scale up even further in the midst of COVID because of the isolation and, and trauma that comes from that. So MDMA is amazing. Uh, it has a phenomenal cure rate and consistency. And part of the reason it has such an excellent track record is that the MAPS organization in conjunction with the feds has been really methodical and mindful about how they structure their clinical trials and who they have serving as facilitation providers for the medicine work. 
in what setting, how people are onboarded with a particular mindset, the preparation, the integration, like the full Monty of it. And when you have that degree of mindfulness in preparation and integration, and you have that degree of excellence in facilitation with purity and potency of a molecule like MDMA, you've got all the right ingredients and that person's ready, right? And you've looked at contraindications and that person's ready to have an experience. Then you've got really all the right ingredients for a pretty phenomenally ex, um, successful experience to unweave and unravel that trauma matrix so that the trauma can come up to the surface. The person can become integrated and hold, become more whole through it, grow through it, be matured by it and actually have the experience of, of welcoming back a part of themselves that was largely disconnected because of the trauma in the first place. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about the experience because my guess is that the majority of my listeners have never had this experience and they're probably thinking, well, what, like, what is it? What happens? And I shared with you before we started this recording that I absolutely look at MDMA as the saving grace of my marriage to Sean. We -hmm. had a fantastic relationship. We had a very mature and amazing and very, very blessed relationship. And yet relationships are difficult. There was stuff sometimes that came up between us Hmm. and utilizing MDMA. What, what my experience of it was, was that it would just drop all sense of the ego. So Hmm. I could speak to him and he could speak to me and we would hear each other clearly without needing to defend or protect or, you know, all the things that show up in, communication, even between people who love each other tremendously. So -hmm. can you talk a little bit about what the experience is generally like for people? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, If you were, if you were to get into the, the lab, you know, on the workbench, so to speak, it would be hard to construct a molecule better than MDMA for trauma. It's phenomenal how it works. It allows the the parts of the self to come online that are oftentimes stuck behind these ego defenses and walls of protection. So the felt sense of it is essentially, if you were to combine the experience of love with coffee. Oh, I love that. (laughs) (laughs) It's a bit of an amphetamine derivative, right? So it stimulates the system. It It helps you become hyper alert and less defended and more in love. Totally. So it, the, the way that it does that is it pharmacologically floods the system with oxytocin, which is the bonding hormone, the hormone that mothers release when they're breastfeeding their infants and that, that togetherness hormonal experience. So it, it allows for the sense of connection and safety. That's one of the reasons that it's earliest use in the early late 90s, late 70s, early 80s was as a couples therapy agent, because it is classically so good for people to get current in their conversation. Totally makes sense. And if we think of the ego as the navigation system for life, then it essentially helps the ego rest its experience of, particularly for somebody who's traumatized, 
rest the ego's experience of being continuously surveying the landscape for how do I maintain safety? Mm. And if trauma isn't so front and center, it still helps ease the ego because it does one of three things pretty simultaneously that all of which improves a person's ability to access their truth from a safe place of safety and security and speak that truth to whoever's present. And the three things that it does is relaxes the fear center, this place called the amygdala. It improves the connection and the, the focal energetic expression of this area right behind our forehead called the prefrontal cortex, which is where we have our executive function and where we essentially gain our witness perspective. And it improves our connection and blood flow to the hippocampus, which is our, largely our memory center. So with less fear, better witness and better memory. It's like a miracle. <laughs> right. Now we can actually rest into the experience of that safety and security, be flooded with that um, comfort of bonding. And essentially that's what MDMA is known as, as the, the love molecule or the truth molecule in a particular way. Most medicines are what a teacher of mine would describe as clarogens. Most medicines help us become in touch with and translate directly what our truth is. Mm. And with working with a therapist, working with one of our partners, working with even ourselves, if we're doing it through a therapeutic process, then we're able to have less fear and be in touch with those, those deep intimate aspects of our own self, oftentimes that are largely subconscious because our ego is walled that off out of protection because potentially that experience or that memory or going into that truth vault would have been overwhelming and daunting if I was to try and do that in my usual day-to-day. Such amazing stuff. I want to ask you about side effects and some of the maybe what could feel like negative things. In the book, you talk about almost like a matrix type experience. You know, in the movies, Neo takes the red pill and then he's like physically sick because it's just so overwhelming and and so powerful. And I've actually seen that happen with somebody on MDMA, somebody who is very, I would say, always wanting to maintain control. And Mm. as the experience started to set in, I think this person felt like they were losing control and that freaked them out. So they Mm. did get physically sick. Now, about an hour later, they were like, it's all good, everything's fine. But that definitely happened. And I think a lot of people who maybe haven't yet experienced it, there will be some fear about like, well, what could happen or what are the side effects or, you know, what's, what's mm-hmm. going to take place. Can you talk a little bit about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we were talking before about contraindications and that means no fly zones for an experience to happen. And in this case, in this conversation, we're talking about medicine work and specifically we're talking about MDMA. Everything has its sweet spot, right? All medicines have their sweet spot. Everything in life has its sweet spot. If you don't use enough, there's no effect. If you use too much, it's poison. Food, water, light, touch, all of it. 
and medicines have their sweet spot too. MDMA has its sweet spot too. So if you use too much and he has too much of an amphetamine experience, that can cause nausea just by itself. Contraindications to having an MDMA experience at all would be somebody who has advanced heart conditions, recent heart attack, congestive heart failure, uh, cardiomyopathy, you know, whatever the heart condition might be, because given that it's an amphetamine salt, it increases the blood pressure and blood and heart rate by about 20 points each. Mm. And if that's an extra stress on the heart that that person doesn't, can't maintain or isn't safe to have happen, then that's a no-fly zone. Other contraindications would be like a history of epilepsy or intractable seizures. If somebody was on a psychiatric medication already, they should not work with MDMA. It's not safe. And so part of onboarding people to work with MDMA is the transition off because most people with severe trauma are already on a psychiatric medication. Uh, right. So to even go into a clinical trial, part of the process is for them to get off of their medication. And then because of the way we do clinical trials, the person going into that might get active treatment or they might get a placebo. And it's unfortunate that people with trauma would come off of psychiatric medication, go into a trial and maybe get the placebo and not even active treatment, but they're still getting psychotherapy done along with it. So this is not MDMA just by itself where we're talking about these success rates. This is MDMA with psychotherapy. So to come back to the question around the nausea that can be related to somebody who is now going through the process of relaxing their ego and all of those defensive walls, if it's not a dose dependent nausea, right? Like they didn't get overdosed or take too much. And usually it's pretty consistent with people. It is a little bit weight distribution, but most people going through the trials would start with 120 milligrams and then have the opportunity to re-up at around 90 to 120 minutes, about hour and a half to two hour mark at half the dose. And that would extend the experience from a four to six hour process to about a six to eight hour process. Is it true that it has anything to do with brain weight? I've heard that in the past. Not to my knowledge. Okay, glad to get that out of the, out of the information yeah. source because that's what I had heard, but. Yeah, I'm happy to look at that research. I've never heard of that. And it'd be hard to I mean, generally a, someone that's 6'8", 320 versus somebody that's 4'8", you know, 105 pounds, they would probably have a little bit different weight, brain weight. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they would have a correlation experience that was even between a particular milligram per kilogram. Some medicines are distributed that way. Like ketamine is a medicine that's very much consistently offered milligram per kilogram, but MDMA is not like that. See, it probably was just Sean wanting to take more because he was so small. <laughs> he was like, no, it's nothing about body weight. It's brain weight. He just wanted to be on an equal. I can I'm sure. see him saying that. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm sure that's where that came. Cause actually that's where I heard that. So who knows okay. where he read that, but. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. I can still hear him snickering about that comment. <laughs> totally. <laughs> um, so the experience of MDMA, given that time window, when you're going through a trauma recovery process and it's being facilitated as such, you can get a mountain of work done. 
because you're consistently in this open-hearted space. Now the front side of that can feel pretty uncomfortable because all of a sudden now what was repressed and suppressed starts to come into the center of the circle. However, that's happening while the fear center is getting relaxed more and more trust and empathy. That's why classically MDMA is not a psychedelic. It's an empathogen or an intactogen that generally translates to it generates more empathy or more connection and more of those mirror neurons that allow us to reference our own emotional process, as well as connect to others and their emotional and experiential process. And so if somebody was getting really nauseous through the process of recontextualizing their relationship with what has been held on so deeply for so long, then that energetic residue coming into the space can cause a lot of movement in the system. And that movement can look like a lot of things. It can look like temperature fluctuation because neuroanatomically it affects the hypothalamus that affects our metabolic rate. So some people get really hot. Some people get really cold. Some people get nauseous. Some people might even throw up. Some people have to poo and go to the bathroom because their GI system might be activated either above or below. Um, some people might get dizzy. Some people might get unsteady. So there's a lot of different psycho-emotional and psychosomatic experiential processes that happen. That's usually in the first hour or so while the medicine's coming on and people are kind of getting their cadence and buoyancy with it. And then you get up to cruising altitude and things are pretty, pretty even killed for the next duration. And usually it rides out pretty easy because MDMA is typically pretty light on the stomach. I would expect that that was something happening that was in the more like the psychoenergetic arena. I would say you're probably right. <laughs> Which is amazing and beautiful, right? So all these things I've been holding on to because my ego recognized that as dangerous, especially if it was a traumatic experience. And oh, by the way, when we're talking about trauma and PTSD, there's there's classic PTSD that's you like veteran in war. Right. Someone flies through the windshield in a motor vehicle accident. Um, somebody that's raped or assaulted or you know, physically hasn't has the experience of being close to death or potentially um, losing their life. That's that classic life threatening experience that defines the classic PTSD. And there's something else. There's a variety of different traumas, but we've largely couched other traumas, similar, um, but different in their inception, similar to how they can express, but dif different in their inception from classic PTSD is complex PTSD. Complex PTSD might be the accumulated residue of a variety of different adverse childhood experiences that could take the form of neglect, abuse, maybe not so much classic physical abuse, like you thought you were gonna lose your life, but emotional abuse, psychological abuse, rejection, abandonment, betrayal, humiliation and justice, the core wounds of the psyche and the soul, all of that can, especially in the formative years when we're really young little beings and we're little sponges and, and all the big people around us are essentially God. And so if we have the experience of our caregivers being hurtful or not there, 
or not providing us the love and the consistency that everybody thrives in and we all need, then it can encode a similar experience to those life-threatening events. And the identification pattern and the story, because we're all meaning makers and the story that gets codified around that trauma or that neglect is usually referenced around self-worth, self-identity, the safety of relationships, the safety of living, how I experience myself to be empowered in certain areas of my life and disempowered in others. And, and all of this can be completely subconscious because all of that can still happen in the first one, two, three, four years of life before we've really codified our language center and our memory. So that's one reason the talk therapy is hard to get to the original events because some of it is pre-narrative. Like we don't even know where, where we're like the old skeletons are before we're even able to access them in a like conscious verbal narrative with the therapist. So medicine work can really get in there and start dredging up the deep waters of the riverbed in a way that is typically highly liberating and can be uncomfortable. Thus, it's really helpful to be in the experience of that facilitation with somebody who's highly trauma informed and a therapist that can really get in the trenches with you, not save you or rescue you from your work to do. And the medicines aren't designed to do that either. The therapist is more like a guide into the, you know, we can talk about it into the underworld or a guide up the mountain. It can go in both directions. Right. They're, not, they're not here to carry you out of the trauma. They're here to be supportive, to help guide you in a particular way, but it's still our work to, to do on our own. Absolutely. And I love that you're talking about just that comparison, because really it also could be the perception of trauma, even if it wasn't a physical thing or, or an actual thing. If we perceive it to be that way, we can still experience those same effects of having been traumatized and just the power that this has to open up new pathways, new doorways, new experiences, and let some of that crap go is so, so amazing. So I want to recommend to all of our listeners that they do check out your book, A Dose of Hope. Definitely let me know what you think after you read it, everyone. And Dr. Dan, this has been extraordinary. I'm so delighted, one, to have seen you again and gotten to catch up a mm -hmm. little bit, but also super grateful for your wisdom, for your leadership in this whole endeavor and for the work that you are continuing to do. So one final question for you, if people are interested in just learning more about this whole world, what would be their next best step? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you for the question. And it's an important one because our job as educators and advocates are really to give people the best, most clear information as possible. So people can make their own educated choices. So if we're speaking about specifically MDMA, then the MAPS organization is by far the best source of info. And they're the ones that, are, that have been privately funding this research and largely the singular organization that has been consistently championing psychedelic medicine research to be recontextualized and recodified in a whole new legal availability over the last like 35 years, close to 40 years now. So that's maps.org, M-A-P-S.org. 
If we're talking about medicine work in general, then there are a lot of different organizations that are doing amazing research. If we're looking at the educational in institutions, Johns Hopkins tends to lead that field. NYU, UCSF, there's kind of East Coast, West Coast, a few in the middle. And that's accelerating. I'm in Austin, Texas these days. And that's accelerating now as well. I went to college here in Austin at St. Ed's. Oh, geez, what was this now? Almost 30 years ago. Whoa. And uh, <laughs> it was super conservative then. And I was super conservative then. Yeah, I was going to say, like you started Absolutely. in a whole different world. <laughs> so, that was a very different, that was a, several lifetimes ago, yes. I'm sure. And, um, and I just saw now, it's not super recent, but it just came across my screen that the University of Texas here in Austin has its own psychedelic research center. Oh, nice. Which is revolutionary. So we're seeing now more and more institutions having that. Uh, we, myself and a couple of partners, are opening up a medicine center here in Austin called KUYA, K-U-Y-A. And we're working with ketamine therapy at this moment. Uh, ketamine is an excellent medicine to give people an initiatory experience into psychedelic states. Uh, it's also quite healing for the nervous system, not just the psychology. It's, it works really well on the hardware as well, as well as the software. And we are a center that will be expanding access into MDMA and psilocybin when they become legal. So you can find us at kuya, K-U-Y-A dot life, L-I-F-E. I tend to have a fair bit of information on my website. That's drdaningle.com. And then we have a coaching integration platform called fullspectrummedicine.com. So there's a, a variety of things to sprinkle out. Perfect. And for the listener, I will link to all of those things. You can find all of that at lucra.com with this episode. Dr. Dan, thank you once again. This has been absolutely awesome. Mm, you're welcome, Mindy. Enjoy Sedona. Good to be with you again. Ready to make your dream your reality? Let's build your business so you can do what you are here to do. I invite you to join my inner circle, the Lucra Collective, a community of like-minded entrepreneurs who got over the limiting belief that they needed to go it alone. Visit lucra.com to join today. That's L-U-C-R-A.com. Lucra, where wealth equals well-being.